everyone, this is Amanda Borshaldan, and welcome to Times Will Tell, the weekly podcast from the Times of Israel. This week, we published an article about a fascinating study that pinpoints when and where early modern man met up with their Neanderthal cousins— 50,000 years ago in the Negev Desert. The multidisciplinary study was authored by the Israel Antiquities Authority and the Weizmann Institute and draws on high-tech carbon-14 dating alongside the discovery of material culture. We are speaking with the Israel Antiquity Authority's prehistorian, Dr. Omri Barzilai, who led a new excavation of the Boker Tachtit site in the Negev. Now, I have a confession to make. Before speaking with Ombri this week, I've always found it really difficult to put a human face on early man. He firmly believes that they were a lot like us and opened my mind. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Hi, Ombri. Thank you so much for joining me. Where am I finding you today? Uh, you're finding me in my office in Har Chotzvim, which is the headquarters of the archaeology division of the Israel Antiquities Authority. So we're here to talk about a new study. But before we begin discussing that, you are a prehistorian. First of all, how did you get into this particular niche of archaeology, prehistory? Well, actually, uh, my, my personal story is like, uh, it all started when I traveled in Africa uh, in, in 1994. And I was uh, amazed by this uh, tribal life, uh, which are centered around Lake Turkana and Lake uh, uh, Victoria, which I, which I traveled through. And uh, during my travels, I saw also some of the archaeological sites, the earliest archaeological sites in a place called Olduvai Gorge. This is, was in the Serengeti uh, um, natural life reserve. And uh, I remembered that I actually learned about this place when I was a BA student. So when I came back, I really wanted to start working in this, in this field of, you know, prehistoric studies, uh, tribal societies, etc. So I'm interested in, in those tribal societies and, and uh, um, ancient populations, uh, um, cavemen, they're so-called uh, occasionally. And uh, this is how I started uh, working in this in this uh, uh, discipline. Uh, I joined some excavations, prehistoric excavations of the at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. This is where I acquired my education. Uh, went to uh, excavate at Hayonimke with the late Professor Ofer Bar Yosef and and his colleagues. Uh, went on to the Neolithic life of uh, Kfar Achoresh, which is a it's a very nice uh, archaeological site in in the in the Galilee. Uh, supervised by my professor, Professor Nigel Goring Morris. And since then, I've been doing my own stuff. You know, after acquiring my education, I started working in the IAA and conducted my excavations in a prehistoric sites, focusing on, on um, big events. And uh, the event that I'm, I'm dealing here in, in this study, and, and also I've been uh, inquiring in the last decade or so, is the appearance of modern humans, um, uh, during it, uh, the time span when Neanderthal's uh, population uh, demised or uh, disappeared in, in global uh, uh, perspective. And uh, luckily, we have here in Israel a lot of sites which actually can uh, or bear some answers to, the, to those questions. One of them is the site of Boker Tachtit, which is reported in, in, the, in the published article, but I also work in another cave site named Manot Cave, which was also... Uh, made the headlines uh, a few years ago. 
okay, we'll get back to both of those. But before we delve into that, I wonder, you know, Israel is obviously known for its biblical archaeology. It's fascinating that you you got the bug actually in Africa. But I wonder how you can find the personal dimension in and find some kind of a human narrative in a history which is not actually written down. All of the people, the ancient peoples that you're dealing with, we don't have actually any texts about them. We don't have stories. There's no King David that we know about. So how do you find the personal side to the archaeology that you deal with? I think I think this is the advantage of very historic archaeology, that there are no historical documentations. Because, you know, um, I'm, then I'm, I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm approaching the study, you know, in a very, uh, uh, how do I say, neutral uh, uh, attitude. I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm not pre-minded before. I didn't read any text, so I'm not. I don't have to look for those things. You know, if if somebody wrote that King King David was here, and then there is another historical document says that King David wasn't here and he was there. You know, so which one of them is is the right one? So I'm 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 saying like, I don't want to deal with the history. If I if I would, so I would be a historian. Okay. I would like to stick only to the archaeological facts. I would like to stick to the archaeological excavations. And what I'm getting in the excavation should be at least the answer from the point of view of archaeology. And, you know, it takes me back to the to my BA studies when, when I studied a lesson with Professor Ilan Sharon. And actually, he, he you know, when he approached the class, he said, like, uh, what is archaeology? Do you know what is archaeology? And, and the students immediately started saying, you know, history, okay? It's all about history. And he says, like, no, this is not archaeology. Archaeology is the material culture, study of the material culture of the ancient populations. And it's not, it's not reading the documents themselves. And then he presented a case study in which uh, historians are, are debating about. For example, uh, it's, it's a story about, uh, I think it's Ramses III, went on a conquest and, and made it all the way to the northern parts of Israel. And of course, uh, made it even to Syria, to a place called Kadesh, if I remember correctly. And of course, in the, in the, in the historiography of, of, of Egypt, it says that King Ramses met there the Hittian king and they had a battle and he won. And then the next thing, you know, a few years ago, a few years after, uh, an archaeological delegation uh, uh, working in Turkey revealed uh, documents from the Hittian sites. And they speak about the same king, uh, the, the opponent of, of Ramses, who traveled to the south and met Ramses for a battle in the city of Kadesh. And guess what did they write? They wrote that the Hittian king won. <laughs> and, 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 you know, so if your historian says, like, which one of these guys is correct? And he said, so we asked him, like, which one of the guys is correct? He said, like, archaeology, you should go and excavate the site. And if you'll find the remains that are Egyptian, so it will mean that the Egyptian won. And if you will find remains that are associated with the Hittians, so it would mean that the Hittians won. So I would like to, I'm not saying that I should completely neglect the historical uh, documentations, but for me, it is much easier to approach it from a, a neutral point of view, uh, unearth the remains, study them, and, 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 and you know, get into my own interpretations based on only the archaeological finds and, and uh, relying less on other sources of data. So this is why I'm interested in, in the prehistoric uh, world, which has no documentation of history. 
So you definitely have a blank slate here. And unlike uh, more quote unquote modern archaeology, which we can talk about, you know, from thousands of years ago, but your archaeology doesn't necessarily even have structures. You're talking about using uh, natural elements and people lived in caves and other things like that. So how can you actually chart the patterns of their life based on such few real, real remains? Okay, so uh, <clears throat> you're right. It's like, you know, during the prehistoric times, it's, it's before any of those revolutions, uh, people were still hunters, gatherers. I mean, like they, they didn't even grow their own crops. They were not agriculturalists. They were not city dwellers. They didn't, they didn't produce their own electricity. They were actually a part of the natural life of the world, of the universe, okay? They belong to this big chain of, of uh, a food chain and, and humans are a part of this world. I mean, like they, they never decided where to live. It's, it's not that they had an agenda said like, I would like to live in a four uh, bedroom apartment uh, overlooking the Mediterranean Sea, or I'd like to stay in the mountains, you know, in the Judean Hills because it is mild over there. They had to follow their prey. Okay. They relied on resources. Resources were the fauna, were the animals which they hunted. Resources were the fruits which they gathered. And of course, they would have to uh, uh, calculate their time and their location, how to get to this place when, you know, when the fruits are, are ready, when they're good enough for eating, okay? And it means they couldn't stay in the same place all the time, all year round. They were, they were uh, seasonal. They are nomads, okay? Following the, the, the circle of, of, uh, of uh, the annual circle of, of, of resources, which are the animals and, and, and the... And the, and the flora and the veg uh, vegetations. So once you, you have, you bury it in mind, you say, okay, so first, thi first thing that ha I have to do as an archeologist is to understand that they are part of a larger system, which we call the ecology or paleoecology or paleoclimate. And they are very much affected by those things. So where should I look for those guys? I mean, like, you know, cave sites, this is great because if you want to survive the winter in Israel, you need to, to live in a cave. It's, it's impossible to stay outside, uh, you know, if you have infants and, and you know, elders, etc. So, of course, look for them in caves. Uh, which other places you should look for them uh, also? It would be like the places with water, okay? We know that uh, this country, it's, it's very dry, so we have to rely on the resources. And by the way, the site which we excavated, the one that we're going to talk about, Bukel Tachtit, is located immediately next to a Palo Spring, okay? It is located today with what we call Ain of Dat. This is the modern uh, uh, version of this spring, but this spring was also very active uh, 50,000 years ago. Uh, there are um, evidence, there are remains of what we call travertines, which are fossilized springs, which means that these guys were sitting next to the spring. And why did they sit next to the spring? They needed water, and also the spring was an attraction for the, uh, for the animals around. So if you want to hunt, okay, and you, you get your prey, you, you need to stay next to the areas which these uh, animals are, are, are walking around. And this is why we, you get the sites over there. So once you understand that you have to consider the ecology or to, to make sense, you know, of your circle, uh, uh, circulations or annual uh, movements of, of populations, you're starting to think like a Paleolithic man, okay? And what do Paleolithic men need also, except for animals and, and water and caves? They would need the uh, materials for making their tools, which is flint, okay? They had no copper, there was no uh, uh, steel, no pottery, only uh, stones, wood, 
and organic materials. So, of course, you would have to look also uh, at those uh, sources or outcrops of flint out of things from which they made their tools. So once you know those things, you start looking for them. And being a prehistorian and, a, and, and an archaeologist, this is a part of my way of investigating those things. I'm having this a pre-assumption of where should I look for these guys, okay? What should I expect? And then once you, you find those places, you start excavating them and actually retrieving the material and, and trying to answer the bigger questions of what are they doing here? Uh, which populations do they belong to? Why does this population show up in the desert 50,000 years ago, etc.? Okay, so many questions just based on what you just said. First of all, and this is something that actually my 15-year-old son asked me, did these early humans think, did they have the capability to think just like we do today? And it sounds like a lot of pre-planning went along, a lot of strategy went along in terms of catching the prey and making the tools and things like that. So what is your hunch? Did early man think like us? For sure. For sure they did. Okay. My daughter asked me about my my grandmother, about, you know, having, they didn't have a, any iPhones or a, any smartphones back then. Like how, how did they, did these people know how to read and write? Of course they did. Okay. It's, uh, today we have different expressions of, of uh, different medias uh, to express our, our communications, whether it's like by the telephone or whether it's by writing or typing uh, uh, it's in previous forms of, of uh, transmitting knowledge, okay? Knowledge was always transmitted, okay? If, if, if you don't transmit the knowledge, the, the, the lineage will just uh, break down, okay? You, you need to teach your, your, your son or your daughter which animals you can hunt. You need to teach them which which uh, plants you should harvest. Okay, you need to teach them when to find them and how to find them. And, and all of this knowledge transmission makes sure that that actually your band or your family, extended family, will survive the winter and the summer, and and will be able to sustain and maintain a, as a community. So teaching was there. We don't find the expressions in in the writing, and this is why it's called prehistory. Okay, nobody wrote that these guys were collecting. Uh, I don't know such and such, okay? But the evidence is, is in the details of the excavation. You do find the animal bones. You do find the ornaments. You do find the, um, the vegetation remains. You do find the organization of the settlement. Even within the settlement, you know, these guys, when they're, when they're camping, actually, it reminds me of, of a modern-day camping. You know, there's always a fire. People are sitting around the fire, but they're not sleeping on the fire. They're sleeping somewhere else. And there's also the refuse of, of the kitchen, you know, of the food preparation, which is located somewhere else in the site. So you can see that there's some sort of a organizational structure, spatial structuring of, 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 a, of, a, of a base camp, of a Paleolithic band. They are also assigned as a, in terms of, a, of a physical features. They're called modern humans, you know. They're, they're exactly like us, what we call homo sapiens sapiens. They, they have similar faces to us, the bones, the, the proportions. So they are like us and they are thinking, but they're not troubled with, with you know, with Instagram or, or how many followers do you have in Facebook? They are worried about other things. They are concerned with other issues. Hi, it's Sarah Tuttle Singer from the Times of Israel. Come join our community and support fast and fair independent journalism. You can sign up with the link at the bottom of every single article on the site. Okay, it sounds like your particular field of archaeology relies a lot more uh, on 
multidisciplinary uh, studies, meaning you have to hit the hard sciences a lot more than perhaps even biblical archaeology or something like that. How are you working within a team and how do you decide to send things off to the lab or things of that nature? How is that working? You're right. It's it's very much, there is interdisciplinary. It's always those excavations are interdisciplinary. Uh, because of many things. First of all, you say, how do we do that? Okay. The first thing is like we set up a research questions. We don't go and just excavate with no reason saying, okay, we found something and let's just dig into it and see what happens. We're coming with a question. Okay. And our question here was about the earliest appearance of modern humans in the region. Okay. This is why we chose this site. We didn't find it accidentally. And the reason was, of course, you read the literature. I mean, like, you know, the, the professional re- literature, uh, and uh, in, the, in the past two decades, the studies of uh, paleogenetics and also uh, absolute uh, dating techniques has improved very much. And actually, uh, following those studies, they came up with hypotheses. This is how it is done in science and in, 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 in the academic uh, uh, research. There's always like a research question which is related to some sort of a hypothesis or, or an assumption that something occurred at such and such time and such and such place as a part of a such and such a, a, a procedure or process, okay? And what we learned about was that modern humans, actually our, our population, our species, evolved in East Africa 200,000 years ago, okay? This is the earliest evidence of the appearance of this population. And this population kept on living in East Africa until sometimes like 80 or 60,000 years ago, And then from there, they started migrating and leaving the African continent and spreading throughout the world and replacing the old populations, which are the Andata or even some other species in Eastern Asia, which are called the Denisovans. And this came from from the studies, independent studies of uh, the ancient DNA. For me as an archaeologist, this is a challenge. I'm saying, okay, you're telling me something that happens in in, in my world, but I need to see that, you know, with my own means. I mean, like, I should expect to see these changes happening in the archaeological record. And this would be like finding the human bones, if they are, and which are very scarce. So it's very difficult, you know, especially in the desert environment, the preservation of bones is very bad. So even if we had these complete human bones, they're buried at the site, they're dissolved, okay? And the second is using and actually identifying the material cultural remains. We know that modern humans made specific tools, okay, which are called the blade tools, the ones that we found at the site of Boker Tachtit. They actually produced those elongated points from which they uh, probably hafted them into spears or some sort of throwers. And this is like a, a very advanced technology of hunting, okay? It increased the, the range of, of, of hunting and also the, uh, allowed them to hunt smaller species, which they did not hunt in the past because the guys before them, the Neanderthals, were actually spear throwers. They used a different type of weapon, which is, of course, it's an efficient one, but you, co- you can hunt with it only a larger uh, uh, game. They co- you couldn't hunt a bird with a spear. It's very difficult. Try to throw a spear on a bird, you're not going to get it. But if you're going to use a bow and arrow, you will get it. And this, I think, was the advantage of the modern humans on, on uh, uh, the expense of the Neanderthals, why they made this uh, thing happen. But first... We have to look for this and to find if this evidence is occurring in our region. As they say, modern humans went out of Africa. And this is what we did find in Boker Tachtit. The industry is there. The lithics are there. They're, they're exactly uh, 
as should be described as modern humans. And uh, uh, I think that the, uh, I would say the smoking gun for, for actually uh, uh, proving that uh, modern humans were here and they were during the time of the Neanderthals, which is 50,000 years ago, was the employment of the radiocarbon dating technique, which we conducted at the site of Buker Tachtit, and also uh, was conducted at a neighboring site. I didn't do that. It was another excavation by someone else of a middle Paleolithic site, which is associated with the Neanderthals. So uh, what we got at the end was having two sites contemporaneous in terms of ages. They all, they, both of them are, are dated to 50,000 years ago, but they are bearing two different industries, lithic industries. One of them is, is a clearly modern human and the other one is Neanderthal. So we did for our interpretation is this is the data which we found, okay? And then when we interpret the data for us, it means that we have evidence of the moderns passing here when the Neanderthals were here. And, you know, 10,000 years later on, uh, after, there were no Neanderthals left and only modern humans established themselves in the region. So essentially, you found both hard archaeological evidence and the hard scientific evidence that showed that these two cultures were contemporaneous and, and close neighbors. They would have known each other. Yes, if, if, we, if it wasn't for the radiocarbon, we could never prove that these populations were living together, okay? If it wasn't for the archaeology, we couldn't do that. So, so it must be a combination of the two. I mean, and, and uh, it's not only about uh, the absolute dating technique and the, and the traditional archaeology. We also employ uh, uh, microarchaeological studies and geological studies of a region that we're studying. We want to know, for example, was this a desert when they came or was it green? Because, you know, one of, the, one of the assumptions, again, I'm going back to the hypothesis uh, stage, when they're saying that when people left Africa, first of all, why did they leave Africa? And how did they leave Africa? Because it's very difficult. They didn't get on an airplane. I mean, like they didn't go to the airport. They had to start moving and going up north. And when you leave East Africa and you start uh, uh, moving on to the north, you meet the Sahara Desert Belt, which is a very difficult uh, uh, region. To, to survive, to live in. I mean, like, you can just start walking into the Sahara, you'll never make it alive. I mean, like, so, um, but geological and paleoclimatical palo studies show that this desert shrank during those times. We have, like, you know, those uh, um, fluctuations, weather, uh, climatic fluctuations along uh, the historical uh, timeline. And uh, we know that the, we had the times when the desert was greener, which means that there were more precipitation, more rains coming in, whether it should be from uh, from southern uh, uh, fronts coming from, from the monsoon uh, regime or, or the Cypriot ones, one from the Mediterranean. So we know that during MIS-3, which is 50,000 years ago, there are evidence that the, actually the desert was greener. And this has enabled those, those uh, populations to move and migrate from Africa, crossing through the Sahara Arabian deserts, and making it, making it to, to our region, for example. It sounds a, a lot like climate change, if you'll forgive me, which obviously we're talking a lot about today contemporaneously. But it sounds like Israel was some kind of bridge between Africa and, and Eurasia. And is this why we're finding so much evidence, both where you work right now in the Negev and in the Carmel Mountains for the prehistoric man? 
Yes, you, you, I think that you, you are, uh, I even read your, your uh, reports, so you, you're probably an archaeologist also. <laughs> in my soul, but not in practice. In your soul, but, but, also, but also your instincts, because you are totally right. I mean, like, uh, uh, this is a land bridge, okay? The, the physical location of Israel, and uh, let's call it the southern Levant, okay, the Middle East, is the, is the only land bridge between Africa and Euro-Asia. Uh, and it's not only about humans, also fauna, uh, you know, for, and, 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 and flora, I mean, like animals and vegetation. We do witness here that we have African species coming in in some periods, and that sometimes we have European species coming in. Uh, it is very natural that those populations and humans are a part of them, as I said in the beginning, you know, that we are a part of the natural world or a part of the, of the food chain. Uh, we should expect to find the, uh, you know, their presence in, in particular times. This is this is why we're finding so much, and this is why we're finding the Homo sapiens, which is origin, which is the species originated in Africa, and we do find also the Neanderthals, which are a species that originated in Europe. Okay, uh, so we 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 got these fluctuations. We got those populations coming in at different times for different reasons. Again, probably affected by the environment, by the weather, climatic changes. You know, for example, we know that the Neanderthals, they came to the Middle East during the times where, where, where glacier, uh, glaciers uh, covered Europe. I mean, like there was no living space over there. So these populations were pushed down further to the south because, because Europe was all frozen. So we have evidence of Neanderthals coming in. And, and the same, on, and, and go vice versa. I mean, like when, when, you know, when Europe, when the ice is melting, uh, so populations are going up again, you know, and, and exploring the, the meadows of, of Europe. So uh, you, you, you do find the evidence of these populations coming in and out, being a land bridge and between continents and also between uh, climatic zones. I really like how you've emphasized several times that way back when we were part of the natural uh, biosphere, not rising above it and making it bend to our own will like we're trying to do today. Now, let's discuss uh, the Carmel Caves. There's so much information coming out of there as well that you've been part of. One of the studies, I'm not sure if you were part of this one in particular, is the Rakefet Cave and the Flower Burial. Uh, can you tell us just a little bit about what it represents? Well, actually, I was a part of this, uh, not, not studying the, the flowers, but I did the radiocarbon dating of populations that were buried in the cave. It was a part of my postdoc uh, study with the Weizmann Institute, with Elisabetta Boreto, who is also my, my colleague and partner in, in the Boker Tachtit uh, um, study. So, um, Rakefet Cave, uh, excavated by Danny Nadel, Professor Danny Nadel from uh, the Haifa University, they explored their, uh, a series of graves of Natufian population. Natufians were actually the last hunters and gatherers. They're like the, they're located, they're dated to the end of the, of the Pleistocene, uh, the Paleolithic populations. A few minutes before, I would say slightly before the uh, onset of uh, agriculture. Do you have a year for that? I mean, the fancy names are kind of hard to track in terms of the timeline. Between 15,000 to 11,000 years ago, we had this, uh, this is like, I would say, the last uh, hunters-gatherers before uh, the Neolithic Revolution. These guys were relying on hunting and, and uh, gathering. They, it, they were already specialized. They exploited a lot of species, including very small species. They did uh, do some cultivation of plants. They were food processing. They had those uh, uh, 
mortars and sickle blades, and actually they were harvesting uh, wild barley and wild uh, wheat and and processing them into uh, into doughs, etc. Uh, about the, the bears and the caves, they are very, these guys were also, they're on the way to settle down, okay? So it means that also in terms of demography, the populations grew. Instead of, uh, of uh, staying in a very small uh, size band of 50, uh, let's say, let's assume that there are 50 uh, people in, the, in a regular uh, hunter-gatherer band, they already established uh, early settlements, which some of us would call it uh, small villages. And... Uh, Gathering people together and living under a different uh, social structure is always a so, is also always accompanied also with changes in, in the material culture and also in the spiritual lives. And these Natufians are very spiritual. They uh, uh, put a lot of emphasis on burials, uh, which were using a, a lot of decoration and and, and, and bearing uh, goods with it with it with the deceased. And one of them was the flowers. They matting of, of the Rakefet grave with the with those plants, okay? So uh, this is an expression of, of something that you really uh, care for the dead, okay? I mean, like, you're not just burying someone. You're also uh, adding some sort of a, of, a, of a grave good or some sort of a special treatment, which means that it's not just burying. There's a spiritual thing that stands behind this, this burial. Now, the burial is also something very important because... We don't have so many burials before that, okay? And what this burial means is, it means, for me, it means territoriality. Why? When we bury someone, we always go to the grave, say, oh, this is the land of our fathers, you know, we got our graves here, and here is my grandmother is buried here. So I guess this is a part of, again, of a, a very much larger and complex procedure which human populations are facing when they're changing their social structure and, and also the annual way of life Instead of being like the Paleolithic hunters, which are circulating all year round, they're starting to settle down in in, in favorite places, establishing their small villages, and actually adding those barriers to make sure that everybody knows that this is their territory, and no one should get into into this territory unless if there's like a you know some sort of an alliance or or, or uh, I don't know some kingship uh, uh, established between between populations. So this is what I have to say about the Rakefet cave. And uh, it, it is a very nice cave with a lot of barriers and very nice finds and uh, very nice expressions for a society that is in a transition uh, from the Paleolithic way of life just slightly before turning into the Neolithic. And when you turn Neolithic, it's a different world. It means that you're starting with the early farmers uh, of the Middle East, which are the people who are in charge of of uh, cultivating wheat and barley and uh, goat and sheep. And uh, from uh, after the domestication of animals and plants, it's a different story. They are very much like us, okay? Very much. It means that human tamed the, the, the nature, okay? Before that, we were a part of the nature, as you said, the, the part of the biosphere of the, of the bio um, world. And once you're turning into a farmer, you're manipulating the nature, you're manipulating the environment. You can live wherever you want. You, you grow up your own crops. You want to go to live in somewhere that is very dry and bring your own water and your own seeds, and you can live there. So this is a, it's a, it's a new chapter in the history of mankind. Well, Umbri, thank you so much. So many questions. We hopefully we'll have another conversation soon, but you've really helped me put a personal face behind this early man. And I really appreciate that, actually. 
thank you. I enjoyed it very much as well. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to Times Will Tell and a special thanks to TLV1 Studios for sound production help. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to Times Will Tell on all podcast platforms. (laughs) 